Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you can find me on all your socials at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me at XNateXGrayX. And that can only mean that we're here to continue our investigation of all things Spider-Girl. And, okay, admittedly, we started with like, you know, like little Spider-Girl. We started with Mayday Parker way back in the pages of MC2's debut in What If? And we've followed all the MC2 adventures, which of course led to some other spider people we got some cool looks at some spider women as they might have been older uh from that you know very 90s vantage point that mc2 sort of continued on and we even saw updates to that with the excellence of aranya when she i don't know web carapist i i don't know what what does she do she fucking big goggle rope faced i don't she know does magic now i mean you know she's on a journey and i'm living for it so she bug magicked her way in <laughs> and we loved that super spectacular big fan of aranya and you know the way she transformed the direction for black tarantula and then we got real fucking weird and we looked at everything that came after the mc2 and we found ourselves looking at tons of spider women some of them that existed in like machine man x51 alternate british universes where there's another character named wild thing also written by tom defalco but it's a novel i don't even know we talked about the weirdest collection of spider girls and that somehow led us to the weirdest collection of general spider people as we found ourselves in the pages of spider-verse spider-geddon and a lot more runs of amazing spider-man than i'd maybe expected personally i mean the thing about it is when this started it was because you wanted to talk about mc2 which had been important to you when you were a kid and you just wanted to revisit it in the process of going through that we realized that mc2 is kind of what we and what the creator are starting with but we get to a point where it, it's it's doesn't really matter that it's mc2 what matters is that it's it's mayday and the fact that it's another universe stops being because like when it starts it's really like a proto ultimates an ultimate universe and then it just kind of becomes this one series about this one character that like obviously doesn't exist in main continuity but like kind of could if you imagine that main continuity would go into the future and it just became all about spider girl and we did a lot of just spider girl and we started kind of thinking about what it means to be spider girl the daughter of peter parker and how that is a superhero type that tom defalco being somebody who really understands superhero types would kind of really understand how to seed that character how somebody would be the daughter of a superhero and how that character would be different but how they would inherit something that is really important to spider people overall which then took us into the spider verse where we met a bunch of other spider people and what were the qualities that they all had it became so much less about the alternate universe aspect and so much more about how the alternate universe is a lens through which to view core character concepts we got really into core character concepts and that's really what has pulled us through this whole thing is just kind of using this particular angle that we came in from to really understand how creators build on ideas and concepts about characters not just 
particular characters and what's important to them, but character archetypes, something that's a little more specific than the hero, the villain, but not, not so specific as who is this Peter Parker specifically? What does it take to be a Spider-Man? What does it take to be a Wolverine? What does it take to be a Spider-Girl? And what does it take to be a Spider-Woman? And we've really just been kind of batting that around for months now. And I think having some really interesting discussions and pulling some really interesting material to have those discussions. And, you know, I imagine for a lot of you, it's very weird, the stuff that we decide to bring up and talk about. And this is not going to, this episode is not going to help with that. <laughs> this is really us going off the rails. But, you know, as we were talking about what we were going to discuss today, I really felt like this is still part of that same conversation that we've been having. And that conversation took us to some honestly strange places. I was excited and, you know, I don't want to get too eager about it, but I was very happy to take a look at characters like, you know, Wolverina and, you know, a little bit more realistically, I was excited to talk about how she plays into things with X-23 and Wild Thing and this sort of funny triptych you can find in these amazing female versions of Wolverine. And I also enjoyed a lot of what we discussed with sillier things like Spider Buggy, who, or Spider Bug, whatever the fuck he was, right? Spider Buggy is a car, right? I enjoyed the things that that offered us, but there's still this sort of understanding that part of what we're interacting with is the archetype of Spider-Man and Spider-Girl, and we are looking at a complex period for Marvel in the way they handled Spider-Girl. You know, the era of Spider-Girl never understood if it was looking at Marvel's history with a smile or with maybe a little bit of shame. And frankly, I think, you know, you can be part of the problem or you can be part of the solution. And I honestly often think Marvel comics is both <laughs> and I think Spider-Man in particular and what he represents is both and we have a lot of things that that leads us to but it does lead us to the spider people we're here to talk about today and they're both really significant spider women that are I'll admit kind of I'm guys I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel mm. here for more content and I know that <laughs> I, I know that like we're getting to some it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy Ripley what did you expect <clears throat> this is your alien baby <clears throat> territory but we're here to look at Spider-Verse. No, 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 not Spider-Verse, the comic event that we already read. And, um, oh, not Spider-Verse, the, the movie. No. And, uh, not Spider-Verse, the less than thrilling follow-up. No. Uh, and not Gwenverse. We already did that to ourselves. We are here to discuss the first visual adaptation of Spider-Verse, which features a unique Spider-Woman. We're going to be talking about Ultimate Spider-Man Web Warriors season three arc uh, miniseries arc event sort of hard to exactly pin down but it was the first adaptation of spider-verse actually running in march of 2015 now just to kind of put that in perspective spider-verse first happened in amazing spider-man volume three number nine in november of 2014 with the amount of lead time that an animated series like ultimate
Spider-Man would need. It's kind of difficult for me to believe with an original air date of March 5th, 2015, man, this Spider-Verse might have been in development at like the same time as the comic. Oh yeah, I mean, I really do imagine this felt to me like a moment in which as the comic series was being produced, they reached out to the animation team and said, hey, we're going to be doing this event. You might want to synergize. And it does result in a very different Spider-Verse. Like all three Spider-Verses are very different. And it's, you know, we actually kind of self-tortured a little bit on this one where I was like, is it a video? Is it a a, a thing? Because, you know, we're doing a lot of videos now. So should it be its own special? How do we do this? And I think, you know, this episode talking about Petra, the Spider-Girl from Spider-Verse is its own thing in our Spider-Girl examination. A larger video talking about the differences in the different iterations of Spider-Verse, much in the same vein that HTML, the previous incarnation of this bigger project that we have come to build through the X's 4 podcasting network, is uh, when we did the every version of the Dark Phoenix saga ever told, including the time it was about Tony Stark eating the Dabari. I, it was really cartoons. So <laughs> I... Okay, so we're here to talk about Spider-Verse and very exciting. And oh, we're also going to talk a bit about the uh, ultimate... Oh, don't give me that. This is the most focused it's ever been. And this is take two. So we're also here to talk about Ultimate Spider-Man Web Warriors Spider-Verse, which... So I'm reading this, right? It's this four-issue miniseries. I'm like, oh, look, there's this other version of Spider-Verse and I'm reading it. I'm like, I don't know how else to say it, but this is really ugly. Like this... (laughs) reads like i don't know snapshots of like an animated see wait a second is this photos of an if this is stills of an animated show this is brilliant then i see what they're trying to oh there's probably an actual animated show isn't there okay so then found it we watched it but so we're gonna also talk about the comic very exciting because while the comic is based on the writing of danielle wolf's episode it features vc's joe caramagna on the adaptation so get it letterers, right? Write your stories. <laughs> but okay. I don't think in all of the work we've done on this show, I was prepared for the final medium the Spider-Verse would reach. We've talked video games. We've talked films. We've talked comics. We've talked novels. We've talked TV shows now. Uh Well, now we're going to talk cardboard picture books, motherfuckers, because we're going to be taking a look at Mae Parker, better known as Spider-Man's cousin who almost drowned that one time. I promise I'll explain it in a minute. Also, this is a weird book. Spider-Man and Friends, Earth 61011's Mae Parker, Spider-Man's cousin. This is a... This is... There's a point, I promise. There is. There really is. And this is... This gets to the things that we have been trying to suss out and figure out about spider girl spider woman spider people as soon as you brought it up and i really you know kind of looked at it i saw it immediately it's also totally unhinged that's just that's that's our brand now but there is a point and it's actually an exciting point that i think proves something about the value of this project from a specific vantage point if nothing else but all right we're gonna get to these cardboard picture books in 
a little bit. The first thing I want us to discuss, because it's super necessary to what we're here to talk about, is we're going to be looking at the Ultimate Spider-Man series that features the first ever live action adaptation of the Spider-Verse. This is like 10 kinds of exciting. This is a little bit confusing, maybe. But one of the things that this most notably provided me as a viewer was a realization that the term Spider-Verse is vaguely unpointed, right? There's something about the nature of Spider-Verse that it seems like whoever is looking at it is going to take a different tactic with. And the thing that that provides me as a viewer that is truly thrilling is I'm able to see how Spider-Verse itself then operates as a version of Spider-Verse. Each person telling this dynamically different interpretation of what the word Spider-Verse means is then themselves acting totemically as the storyteller and is taking that phrase and giving it meaning. With the original, of course, it's the inheritors and that's a very uniquely of itself story there's not a lot of ways unless you're willing to go on this incestuous you know vaguely cannibalistic of similar creatures narrative that you're going to get a whole lot from it and then we see into the spider verse which you know without oversimplifying it is a really interesting way to show kind of a take on the sinister six it's so many villains throughout the course of the film but there's a really strong focus on a vaguely Sinkevich kingpin and Catherine Hahn being so fucking amazing she needed extra arms to do it and then we get the Jed McKay iteration of Spider-Verse which is Miles doing his part to protect other spiders before ultimately we find ourselves talking about this one which is what if the goblin had found a way to ruin a version of Spider-Verse? And also, I think, what if we really lean into the conventions of Saturday morning cartoons for Spider-Verse? And perhaps some of the more conventional parts of Spider-Man. I would say that the goblin is like the Spider-Man-ziest Spider-Man-zy thing you can spider. To me, that's so part of the Saturday morning cartoonage of it, which is like, you know, you really got to strip things down to their most understandable. And it was one of the things that really kind of sucked me into paying attention to this was because my Saturday morning cartoon was X-Men the Animated Series, which I don't know how that was successful because while it did simplify things to a certain degree, it really just kind of went off the rails so many times and gave no fucks and was very confusing and really, really messy and I was just really paying attention to how clean and simple this Spider-Verse story tried to make it for the kids and really tried to make it something that you could just kind of enjoy for what it was and not sort of do the thing that I think everybody did back in the early 90s when we were watching this X-Men cartoon which is just stand their jaw agape asking what the fuck is going on 
there's actually a really cool nod to that in this Spider-Verse that we're going to talk about, which is the original Spider-Man from our childhood voices a number of the spiders in this, which is really cool. He's also better known as the voice of Prince Eric and the film version Greg Brady. So he is a voice actor that our generation's pretty familiar with. Uh, and he did like Night Spider and he did uh, a few of the others, notably. Gilmore Girls Milo Ventimiglia I will not fucking hear any other project he is Jess Jess is a perfect hu- I've ma- I married Jess right so like I Jess is perfect right um <clears throat> I but I don't identify with Rory like I want to hit Rory with a pillow in the head like too hard at a slumber party where we're both playfully hitting each other with a pillow in the head I would just like, hit her way too hard like an SNL sketch Rory drove me nuts I'm much more a Lorelei yeah I mean you know I had I had such high hopes for Rory, but they really just Jess is where I was like, okay, she's she's gonna be good, and then they just had to keep the show going, so she just becomes an even greater disaster every single season into that Netflix show, and what a bummer. But yeah, I really she was at her best with Jess, and Milo Ventimiglia was at his best as Jess. I only wish that Jess and Luke hadn't been related, so it would yeah. be easier to ship them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, good lord. <laughs> You know, they even shared an apartment. They were unlikely roommates. In my head, Jess is in college. Yeah, and you know, if Luke is not a blood uncle, it's all fine. Yeah, you know, and but Logan really comes in and, and throws it all on its head. The worst. Um, I, I love Logan. I think he's great. He's no Jess, but uh, you know, I think Logan would agree. Anyway, this is a uh, this, this is been... now a Gilmore Girls podcast, so uh, we can figure out how that's connected to the Spider Verse real quick, and then we'll just get on track. Uh, my love Ventimiglia is Spider Man Noir. There you go. That's that's it. That's how this happened. So uh, I think the general vibe I got from this Spider-Verse that was notable for me was the term Spider-Verse here is being used to mean a congregation of spider folk. And I love that. I think that's a great use of this team and of that term. But my concern comes in at the sort of realization that that's where it kind of stops. Everything else about this, it's just multiversal spider people. And if that's what Spider-Verse means, great. I'm in. But then what is Spider-Verse Unlimited Infinity comic that's solo stories about individual spider people at a time? So I think my big complaint here is adding this to the mix creates some amount of brand confusion for my understanding of how we're supposed to use the term Spider-Verse, which I don't really mind. I know this is like a children's cartoon and there is nothing you can tell me that is different from they use these cartoons to test things. They say, what if you see this character as a child? What is your reaction to them? Five years later, you're going to have buying power as an 18 year old. Are you going to spend money on Luke Cage and Iron Fist who started appearing in Ultimate Spider-Man a few years before they got their Netflix shows. There is a lot to be said for the value of putting out a Spider-Verse cartoon in 2015, hoping that when the film comes out just a few years later, because it's a development cycle, it's going to get those kids who remembered thinking this was awesome and can't wait to see it with Miles in the lead. Well, and I think those kids who are maybe just a little too 
too young for comics continuity to get to participate. You see the older kids or the big kids or your big sibling reading the Spider-Verse comic. And soon after that, it shows up on Saturday morning cartoons in a format that you can really understand. And I do think, you know, I applaud the show for making it very digestible. I sometimes think shows like this underestimate the ability of young people to digest the continuity and they simplify it a little too much but it does sort of create this like baby's first spider verse and then you know you are going to get a lot of opportunities throughout your life if this was you know you're five years old and you're watching this you know you're what you're five years old in 2015 so yeah now you're now it's seven years later you're 12 years old you had some solid opportunities over the last seven years to engage with the idea of the Spider-Verse. And I think a little bit more what it means to be your own Spider-Person. I have no qualms with continuing to see stories about Peter Parker. I don't love Peter Parker, but he's a really great, super fantastic everyman because anyone who's got that level of intelligence, that level of technical ability, that level of, that body which is given to him by superpowers, but also the fucking superpowers, right? Uh, A magical destiny. He's not actually every man. He really does not pass that test in the least, but he is a a decent lead. But, you know, he he would not be the guy I want to see my spider stories through. I would probably want to see it through, like, Miguel. Um, I maybe don't want Miguel's horrible future, but I like Miguel. He's a really fun Spider-Man. He's got cool powers. He's got a great design. I love the stark shock of the colors. It allows for some really beautiful, really... Uh, powerful, vibrant work. Do I love Miguel? I like his character a lot more than I like the world I find him in often, but I wouldn't tell Peter Parker stories, and I wouldn't have known that until I got super into Spider-Verse. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that is a big part of what this can be for a person of any age, and why it's kind of worth it to look at every version of the Spider-Verse, because it does sort of lead you to answering the question, like, who is your Spider-Person? What is your entry into this idea? And I still don't think I know what mine is. It really might be Mayday. You know, I know from even though I'm really I really root for him, I don't think it is the Web Weaver, the new queer one that just came up in Edge of Spider-Verse. I love that that's there finally. But I think unfortunately I'm now, you know, I'm at the age where I'm looking at that thinking, I hope some, you know, 14 to 17 year old kid who is like me is seeing that and that's their spider person. But it can't really be mine now. Some of the fun of this project has really been asking myself that question and yeah even going back to a kids cartoon show as a 37 year old man and asking like do I see any of it here probably not I see a version of Spider-Man noir that isn't like a weird racist so that's great you know you're getting much more of the like hard-boiled detective kind of campy version of that in a way that I'm just like I I maybe think that this is what Spider-Man noir needed but I I'm willing to to go anywhere that says Spider-Verse and ask the question. And this one really did simplify the story down. The goblin finds a way to travel transdimensionally using the Siege Perilous, which... The Siege Perilous is the one wrinkle where I was like, why would you say that? That's too complicated. I think it's just like a MacGuffin. Yeah. It's just like, oh, okay, and big time fans will love this. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's the idea of creating a gateway and then we power it with Electro 
and before you know it, we get trips to see Spider-Man 2099, Spider-Girl, who is Petra Parker, who is a female version of Spider-Man, just like pretty much single drop replace the entire like male-centric universe, male-dominated society that we've lived in uh, this whole time. Switch it to be what seems like, you know, I have to assume that if it's a perfect switch, there's probably problems, but I saw no like, ugh, you're weak like a man stuff. I There was a couple of like, you know, I can't believe I got beat by a boy, but that doesn't feel mean-spirited, so I really like the way they handled like, you know, oh, this is an all-female universe, or at least a female-forward universe. It was done very carefully. I mean, I think we gotta, we gotta explore that one a little bit more. I thought it was really cool, but I do think it was one of those things, you're right insofar as like, they were never like, oh, you're weak like a man, but it was kind of such an exact flip of the idea while putting some rose-colored glasses on how we treat women in our culture by saying that this is the reverse of that. Okay, I do really respect that opinion. You know, my hope was more that if they are showing a female-forward world, uh, they are also taking the time to show that women would not be inherently responsible for the same mistakes men make in establishing society. They would probably have their own unique mistakes. I just would hesitate to say that uh, a female-dominated society would make the same dumb mistakes men do. I like that. I like that read of it. And I think that can be there. I just, again, it's, you know, it's that Saturday morning cartoon thing where I'm saying, like, since things are simplified, I, I'm i not trusting that all the nuance will get there. And that's a really good example of a thing where I was just like, you could do an entire show just about this flip and what it means and what it says about both societies. And, you know, this is a kid's show, so we're obviously not going to do that. I do really like little comments like, oh, I could never let anybody find out that I got beat by a boy, which is relatively innocent, but it just, it does really start to lead into questions of like, you know, if this is just a gender reversal, what does that say about the world in which society is dominated by male-presenting, male-born people? Speaking of male-born and male-presenting people, that's unfortunately the only example of a spider woman or girl that we get in this story. As from here, in the second episode, we see a really toned down Spider-Man noir. We get a really animated, seriesed up, really gentle, likable Spider-Ham. We get Spider-Knight, who feels just like any sword and sorcery Spider-Man, or like all of them combined, really generic there. And then a very heartfelt Miles sequence before it all coalesces in a big team-up. I find the major convention here that the goblin, this weird fucking super being, demoned out goblin, like you expect this guy to be in a Patrick Fillion comic, but not a Spider-Man cartoon. The hard part here is that I don't care about the bad guy. He's just like a, a big deus ex machina super baddie. But I actually really like the emotional play of all of the spiders together. There are some ones that maybe feel cooler looking than execute. For instance, I didn't have a lot of emotional connection to the Spider-Man noir stuff here, nor did the Spider-Knight stuff really affect me, though that's pretty in line with my reaction to spider stuff. While I'm actually a really big noir fan, and that's like my favorite genre of superhero comics, noir comics, I really have never connected with Spider-Man noir. I thought 
all of the Garfield and friends were ready to party. I hope you bring lots of spaghetti magic of the Spider-Ham sequence. Great. The brutal honesty of Petra and Miles facing Peter in the ways in which they are not him. Amazing, amazing stuff. But I didn't really understand why Electro had to be the big, big bad at the end, uh, which is reminiscent of Kingpin and Lady Ock, uh, which kind of tested here. I don't know. Where were your thoughts, Teak? Because uh, I really, you know, we didn't watch this one together. I watched it with the boys here, Kevo and Jonah, who both will weigh in when we do a video. But uh, I would love to get what it was like for you c- coming together on this. So I, it was weird for me. I actually w- was the most Spider-Man Peter Parker I have probably read is Ultimate Spider-Man. I was coming back into comics around the time that Ultimate X-Men was showing up and I understood that all of the Ultimates universe came out of a Spider-Man book. I feel like I just like had some disposable income and picked up some of the trades. I just remember I had read a lot of Ultimate Spider-Man. And so to be producing a series called Ultimate Spider-Man, which by the time this is coming out, Ultimate Spider-Man is really synonymous with Miles. And this is a Spider-Man who, despite the title being Ultimate Spider-Man, seems to be more from a universe that is like ours. And then in this series, he travels to what is kind of more of an ultimate universe where Peter Parker is dead as he eventually is in the ultimate universe and Miles is Spider-Man. Adding to that, Petra, who feels a lot in voice and in iconography like Mayday, but whose background is both gender-swapped Spider-Girl or gender-swapped Spider-Man, gender-swapped Peter Parker, and then also a little bit Jessica Drew from the Ultimate Spider-Man stories, who is a clone of Peter Parker. So it was just this really weird thing where I'm like staring at this kind of slack jawed, just trying to figure out like trying to like not let myself make it complicated because the whole point is they're not making it complicated. They're taking pieces of ideas and molding them into something new that is a lot simpler. They've really straightened out a lot of the lines. And I had that thing of being like, well, my show was X-Men the Animated series which is just so complicated and so messy so why aren't they making this one complicated and messy that's good for kids and it's probably not and it probably doesn't matter whether it is or not this is just the show that they created and i didn't need to have a value judgment on it i just kind of need to see what's going on but i really was just like trying to grasp onto all these pieces and see what i could make of it but i appreciate that they did the work that they did here and i do love that you mentioned x-men the animated series again because i think for me my big animated series as a kid, you know, I think it varied very often. I loved X-Men, but quickly after I got into the X-Men animated series, I started having like regular Saturday morning stuff. That's not to say that like I was some, no, it was like I had events and like school things and clubs and like, you know, it was part of where I'm from. You did things, you had clubs or you had sports or you had some kind of event. And Saturday mornings, I was often doing something. And X-Men was on 
on at like 10 or 11 where I'm from. And so X-Men was sort of like one of the first things to fall off of my animated series radar. Not that I didn't ultimately watch it all, not that I didn't tape it and eventually watch it, but my Saturday morning experiences were a lot more about, I think, youth. And then quickly after like nine and 10 years old, I wound up in this weird position where like I still wanted all the Zords, but I definitely wasn't still watching Power Rangers. I just thought the toys were still cool. And I thought it was like too kitty to still watch animated shows or Power Rangers. But I still wanted the X-Men action figures too. And there's a really fascinating function of how we grow up where we stop maybe identifying and not everybody because everybody's experiences are unique to them but many of us stop identifying with watching the show and then maybe when we're at the mall with our friends we're like oh yo check out this amazing wolverine hoodie i'm gonna buy it and then you buy a piece of merchandise based on that character even though you still don't watch it and then that's why you go see wolverine when the x-men or you know wolverine in the x-men movie when that comes out or when the Wolverine movies come out and it builds a fandom that you sort of perpetuate by leaving you off on a good note. I think something a lot of people don't recognize when they get into children's media from adulthood is that children's media is designed for cycling. It's designed to be in such a way that it's really unlikely that if something has an age range of, you know, eight to 10 year old expected viewership, that those same kids will watch all six seasons, which is something I I actually hear a lot about Phineas and Ferb. I'm a huge Phineas and Ferb fan as an adult. It's, you know, my favorite cartoon of all time. There's a strong positivity. There's a can-do nature to the show. It allows for the silly magic of childhood romance without a lot of the over-trappings of trying to project adulthood onto the characters in a show that's already about children that are engineers and nuclear physicists. So, you know, we're talking about a show where the hyper-imaginary is part of the mundane and it really manages to straddle a magical line and it ran like eight seasons and like 214 segments and yeah they didn't think anybody who started with Phineas and Ferb at four years old was still religiously watching it at the end and that's the same of like Fairly Odd Parents or Spongebob they expect that people are going to come and go from these things and I think that's even the answer to my question and I wouldn't have gotten to it without this discussion but I said earlier that this segment, I'm really bothered by that this Spider-Verse is defined as a congregation of like-minded super beings. Meanwhile, then we've got Spider-Verse Now, which is an unlimited comic. What the fuck? I think they're counting on the branding to do most of the work to, I don't want to say exploit the childhood nostalgia for a moment like this by using Spider-Verse so extensively, but it's not that they thought that using Spider-Verse here was going to get millions of comic buying 42 year olds to tune into Spider-Man Web Warriors for four weeks. Yeah, I think it had a lot more to do with making sure anybody in the family, anybody in the household could be part of Spider-Verse in some capacity. And this really was the entry point for the kids, the really young kids. And I know we're not talking a whole lot about the story itself, but the story kind of goes like Goblin gets Electro to open the Siege Perilous. He goes to a time era. He tries to find a spider person. Peter tries to stop him, teams up with the 
spider person. The goblin gets the spider person's blood. They go to the next world after Peter and that spider person learn a valuable lesson about the magic of friendship. And the whole thing continues. Yeah, it's each episode. He does that two or three times. It's four episodes. And then and yeah. that's how we get our crew. And it's a weird, cool crew. As seasoned Spider-Verse vets, we really do recognize people like Spider-Ham, Spider-Man Noir, even Petra, because she's really just Mayday. <laughs> Spider-Knight is one of the weirder ones. But then, you know, immediately I'm just thinking about Spider-Nave from this most recent Edge of Spider-Verse. It's not really surprising to see a sword and sorcery spider person i guess it was a little more surprising that it's kind of like a, a knight but then the armor is like almost futuristic i don't know to me he's a he's kind of a lame character but he's also like the design was really cool and i sort of i liked where they went with that a little bit more than i have liked where they have gone with period piece spider people in the comics i don't know that might just for whatever reason i responded really well to that one but then and of course you got miles and miles who's such an important character like i said really to me synonymous with ultimate spider-man so it was so odd for him to be kind of discovered in this ultimate spider-man where it's really a peter who is not ultimate peter just so odd and man so joyful to hear the voice of donald glover voicing miles truly an exquisitely strong performance you know i feel like don glover being emotionally responsible enough to i'm sorry <clears throat> i feel like dong lover being emotionally <laughs> I was wondering if you were going there with that. I, I wanted to make sure I put the right emphasis on the right penis. So, you know, him being such a good guy and being like, I played Miles and now I'm 73 and can no longer play Miles Morales unless I'm playing old man Miles. And the fact that he is playing other roles in this same universe, accepting other really cool opportunities to pursue roles within the Spider-Verse, I think that's really uplifting. Like that celebrates who he is as an actor because... Because people are thrilled to play characters much, much younger than they are because it offers cash. And who can blame them in a youth-dominated society where there is a misbegotten belief that the commodity of youth is equal to the quality of your being? But the responsibility to the younger generation of Black or Latino actors who have worked their whole lives growing up excited to play somebody like Miles that they would get to play Miles thanks to guys like Dong Lover actually in this moment thanks to guys like Donald Glover you know blazing a trail that's really special that he recognizes that impact and what role this moment must have played to help open the minds of a generation to Miles Morales and what he could be as a Spider-Man it's really touching well and you know I just think that's such a good example of making making this something for the whole and making Spider-Verse something for the whole household where, you know, the teenage sibling or the parents, whatever, know Childish Gambino. They know Troy from Community. And the younger kids now have this in with that actor through being Miles Morales, who's going to be one of the younger spider people that they're maybe going to relate to a little bit more. You know, in this, Miles is very specifically 13 and says that repeatedly. And that's kind of, you know, when you're a Saturday 
morning cartoons age kid. 13 is like the big kid that you want to be. Peter is almost maybe even a little bit too old. He's cool and you want to watch, but you're not thinking about what it's like to be Peter. You're more thinking what it's like to be Miles. And that's this cool actor that your older siblings or your uncles or your parents know from, you know, his career in more adult stuff. And to me, that just kind of spoke to the function of this particular Spider-Verse to expand the blanket to, you know, allow everyone to be under it. Speaking of allowing everyone to be under it, I actually grew up a pretty big fan of Spider-Ham. No lie, I really love third, third, fine, fuck, I quit. Third wall breaking characters. Yeah, I love anytime you can look in on a universe. I gotta go. I really love fourth wall breaking characters who thrive on the madness of what shouldn't be. That's a place I love to go as a reader, as a storyteller, as a daydreamer, right? That's something I really appreciate. It's something that you can see captured in so many ways throughout the Marvel Universe. But one of my favorites my whole life was growing up reading Spider-Ham. It's just this sort of sensationalized, he's a dick that I'm not really here for. Yeah, he was never like the world's smoothest most couth spider ham pig guy but he wasn't the worst either and I feel like at some point we really lost sight of that and we really fell in for the like I don't know how else to describe it it's almost like they think he needs to be breaking ham or something like he needs to be edgy in order to be relevant but I don't think that really increases anything for this character and that's why this animated series version intended for children really is a breath of fresh air because having and I brought it up recently in an episode of something we did, but like I rewatched Beetlejuice this holiday season with uh, my guy and it was... Um oh my god Beetlejuice is such a sexual predator and he literally molests women throughout the film and it's just disturbing and that's not the Beetlejuice that I remember from the animated series that I was super hyper attached to as a little kid and you can see the effect of characters like Beetlejuice being vulgar and reprehensible at every turn and ultimately being such a successful creative endeavor that's so imprinted uh, psychologically on a generation of kids even though it really wasn't intended for them that there's this much safer expectation now of the gritty character for kids to be a little bit more the fart jokes of Ren and Stimpy and a little bit less Ren has gay thoughts for Stimpy so he has to murder him. Parts of Ren and Stimpy. And there's really something about that D-Billy Westification of Spider-Ham that really made this character work for me. I so agree with that and I kept myself muted because I kept wanting to chime in because I hate Spider-Ham as we see him in a lot of the stuff that we've read and I have no connection to any other version of Spider-Ham so I don't I had nothing to you know what my current version of Spider-Ham is he's the most powerful person on my team in contest of champions I love that read for him his animations in that so are good. spectacular they're amazing and so you know he he's my ride or die in that game that I'm just like desperately clinging on to trying to get ahead because I'm lagging so far behind uh nico here and just trying to trying to get through my levels but i i have no connection to classic spider ham and what we have gotten since spider verse yeah really has been that like okay we made it to adults like he really could be that spongebob type character where the kids that grew up the show grew up enough with the kids that grew up with it such that even though it's still watchable by everybody the 
now adults who were kids when it started get the joke. And the joke isn't rapey or offensive or super dark. It's just a little more adult. With Spider-Ham, yeah, we really just got that like, oh, like, but what if it was dark and gritty, which it didn't work for me in any capacity. And to simplify, to go back to the cartoon and to kind of, because the other great thing that this does is the universes are very stylized. The 2099 Spider-Man universe is, you know, 3D animation rendering, like the shading is very different. Some of them are not stylized. Petra's universe, the style is women, which is great style, but the animation doesn't change. Spider-Ham is where we really get a different type of animation, and it's more of a Looney Tunes thing. Looney Tunes logic applies to the universe. So, you know, we have an anvil moment. They're doing kind of jokey tricks, but they're still fighting. And it gets to what I believe I could like about any version of Spider-Ham, which is that he comes from a cartoon universe. And even if stuff is getting serious, his universe's rules and logic will still apply to some degree. But when he betrays the whole team and like is like naked with a human pig body, I don't know. There's just weird stuff. This one really knocked it out of the park for me with Spider-Ham. And like now this is my version alongside my very useful teammate in Contest of Champions. And yeah, you know, the only other note I think I really want to add about the story here is that the before we discussed, you know, the conclusion, which is not exactly a foregone conclusion, doesn't come out of nowhere, but it's a bit of a jump. The Miles universe looks unbelievably like the 90s animated series down to the J. Jonah Jameson. And I liked that about it. There was a lot of really emotional exchange there. If I have any complaint about Petra, she's just kind of hollow. Not as an insult, but the character doesn't offer any new perspective on what it means to be Spider-Girl because this is meant to be a new generation's first, not what if there was a girl who has spider powers. This is Spider-Girl, specifically. And I think for that reason, she had to be a very safe iteration of what could have been an exciting chance to see a version of Mayday come to life. But I do understand the, I don't want to call it fear or trepidation, but rather the propensity to lean into a franchise model. And in this case, I believe the better choice for the franchise was to simplify as you've pointed out, this idea of who Spider-Girl is to be a more accessible character, even if it costs a bit the complexity of Spider-Girl. Yeah, I mean, and this is a common thing that runs between the two Spider-Girls that we're going to talk about today, which is, I think, the idea, and, and this also takes me back to the X-Men thing, but I think the idea of a female Spider-Person who is the daughter of Peter Parker was maybe seen as uh, not relatable for young people. And I get that. And I don't necessarily think it's wrong. This is, again, a place where X-Men the Animated Series was like, oh, bring in Cable and make sure to make it clear that he is the son of Cyclops and Jean Grey. That show did not care about the relatability of any of the characters to a five-year-old watching the show. Like, Jubilee might have been kind of cool, but even she is like a little bit too old and there's very few other teens 
scenes. And that show just kind of said, you know, whatever the fuck. And complicated continuity didn't matter and relatability didn't matter. I don't think that was to a benefit or I don't think it was a problem. I think it just depended kid to kid. I also don't think they were super concerned one way or the other. I think they were just kind of throwing stuff at the wall. I appreciated the deliberateness of the decision to not make Petra the daughter of Peter Parker. And even more so in this kid's book, it's clear that May Parker is a cousin because that's just going to be something that a young kid, like a really a two to five year old, is going to identify with just a little bit more. And I absolutely get that. It does really make me ask the what if, like, is that just a really smart conservative decision? Or is there a world in which you could say this is the alternate universe daughter and, you know, a kid could pick up on that and imagine like, oh, one day I will be older and have a kid. What if I ran into that kid in current times? I don't know if those thoughts are just too big brained for a child. I don't know what's going on. I certainly had them about cable back in the day and I'm a complete mess. So I don't know. But I just it was fascinating to observe in both contexts. And the play out of the animated series sees the Green Goblin use the serum that he extracted from the blood of all of these spider people to turn himself into Spider Goblin. And then he just can't stop transforming, I guess. <clears throat> and then they like super powerful. And then he transforms even further into Spider Goblin. And then he just sort of burns out. They stop him. Great. Really happy. Very. Oh, look, if we just work together, he's stopped kind they of really thing. do basically say exactly that and so then he's just stopped by the power of you know sharon lois and bram singing skitty marinky dink and terrific from there we wind up with electro is the big bad for two seconds at the end in a way that i don't really find meaningful but i understand that we were pressed for action figures or something he turns into a vehicle <laughs> oh like iliana <laughs> So the payoff is just very quick. We just kind of barrel toward the conclusion as fast as possible. And that's actually for the better of this interpretation of Spider-Verse. One of the things that I found so charming about it was it dispensed with so much of the work that goes along with Spider-Verse. And it does so in a way that's to the show's benefit. Instead of building up the web of life and destiny and the inheritors and, you know, which I all I find very interesting, but it's too much for a little kid to suddenly get out of nowhere when that's really not been the narrative of Ultimate Spider-Man. So, you know, on the whole, as far as an adaptation goes, I give it a pretty good score. I don't know that I want to compare it to the original Spider-Verse, but I guess if what you're saying is this is like, a, I don't know, I guess it's... <sighs> It's rough. It's not Spider-Verse at all. It's not Spider-Verse in the least. But it's not not Spider-Verse because it hits some of the check marks. Multiple spider people working together for a common goal because of an agreed upon set of standards and morals that govern their sense of responsibility, interdimensional stuff, needing to team up to save the day. Somebody's after some element of what makes spider people spider people. There's a lot there that's very Spider-Verse, but none of it is Spider-Verse. And I do think it's amazing that this 
it's actually a Spider-Verse that was worked on by Bendis. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny that you hit those two beats last. Yeah, it's not Spider-Verse, but it is Spider-Verse. Like, this is, this can be your, your five-year-olds onboarding into Spider-Verse, and then when they're old enough and they can read the first comics, they're going to have some familiar thing. And yeah, it's, uh, God, getting Bendis in the mix with Spider-Man is always just kind of like, adds a little dark magic to the whole thing. I guess I'll give it a B plus. You know, for the thing that it is that is not the thing that it's meant to be, it does a very functional job, and I think it did help lead a generation of readers to the idea that, hey, maybe multiversal Spider-Man is cool, and it's a thing I could get into, and I will want to go see that movie someday. Thank you, Sony. So, yeah, I, I give it a B plus. Yeah, I think I'm about there with you, too. Uh, there really was not anything to take points away. I have questions, like, was this too simple? Could they have made it smarter and more adult? Or were the shows that I saw like that kind of not, were they kind of a mess? And because, uh, you know, I do, for all the X-Men the Animated Series was very helpful in onboarding me to X-Men, I don't have the same nostalgia for it that a lot of people my age do. And I don't find it super easy to go back and watch it and really enjoy it. I can watch it and academically point to what helps me understand what, but I'm not really fond of rewatching it. And I think I enjoyed this more as an adult that had no investment in it. And yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm left with some questions, but I thought it was perfectly good for what it was. I probably have, let's say, less things I have any real thoughts about when it comes to this Spider-Man and Friends Mayday stuff. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about it for what it means and what it helps us to understand. To give our audience a little bit of understanding, we're talking about Earth 61011, which is the Spider-Man and Friends Earth. This world was created by Michi Fujimoto and Francis Manupal. And and it first appeared in Meet Spider-Man and Friends, a cardboard style children's like eight page page, quote unquote, picture book. I mean, like they're mural ish, but they're like not like Basquiat. Like, you know, they're not like we're, this isn't Banksy came to your town. You know what I mean? So this world winds up in video games and winds up adapted for because uh, the this is kind of like the basis for Superhero Squad, like the Superhero Squad show universe. That was a TV show and video game line for a while. And all right, you already alluded to it. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about it uh, before we get into anything else. But, you know, Teak, one of the things that made this so valuable to me that when I brought it to you, I was like, he's going to laugh. But you were like, no, I see what you care about with this. This May Parker is Spider-Man's cousin because she can't be his daughter because there really isn't room in a children's preschool <laughs> book series to be like, let's talk grandfather paradox. <laughs> My friend here, May. Hi, I'm May. Hi, so I'm Peter and I'm May's dad. But right now I'm six and uh, she's six. Yeah. It's a time travel thing don't worry about it okay like you just can't do that in a children's picture book like we're talking little tykes right now so that actually exploits though why spider-man being may's father is so prohibitive and i would just love to hear you talk a bit more about it yeah i mean you know i think you nailed it which is 
like we're not going to get into the grandfather paradox with a three-year-old like and uh, not to mention the fact that like you know it i'm gonna grow up and have sex and this is going to be the product of that like we're we're just not there in terms of how we produce children's books i hope one day we do have a culture that is open enough about the fact that sex is perfectly fine and not something to shy away from such that like a three-year-old can understand that babies come from somewhere that's just not how we do it these days and it's complicated anyway because of time travel so i don't know if this will ever make sense to a kid but like we're simply not going to do that in this story so we have may the cousin but what's really important is that we have may because may is so important she is such an iconic figure that even though she is from this one-off universe that was not even the most loved second imprint alternate universe marvel universe we ever got she is just popular and important her book never sold that well but she's so familiar to people such that a version of her though slightly tweaked is important to have in this series because what a great way to bring young girls into the mix and let them feel like oh here's a character that you can identify with and it's not going to be black widow and it's not going to be you know even somebody like jessica drew it's going to be spider girl because spider-man is shorthand for cool young guy and you know you kept talking about the shows that influenced you as a kid and i don't know how i didn't bring it up directly earlier but like batman the animated series was a profound impact on me and it was more complex and more mature and more adult and it, it actually reminds me of a really funny argument I got into on the internet one time and I have probably brought it up on the show before and it it's really interesting how it affected me. I had said at the time when people were complaining about iterations of Storm in film being disappointing that it is of note that you know I think she's just a little too complicated a character. I think you know when she's got over a thousand appearances and she's been a goddess, a lover, a child, uh, an old crone, a dark sorceress, a vampire. She's been on deep space missions and made contact with space whales and together brought each other back to life with the magic of space wind. And like, it's unbelievable all the things she's been. So yeah, I think it would be really hard to nail her in one film. And somebody replied to me, so are you trying to maintain that you're of the mindset that Storm is a more complex character than Seely from The Color Purple. And I was like, um, well, no. And they were like, well, because she's also a complex black woman that's in an adapted story. So what are you trying to say? That she's not a dynamic, powerful character? And I'm like, no. I'm, I'm saying that because of the complexity of some ideas, there are things that do and don't play out as well in certain narrative forms, right? And I think Batman the Animated Series had a really specific magic that managed to capture like adulthood and childhood in a way that nothing else did and I think X-Men the animated series tried really hard to be in that same vein in one way and the Spider-Man the animated series tried really hard to be in that same vein in another way but I don't think either one really captured the magic and while I certainly believe children's television has gotten much more mature and capable of communicating more complex ideas 
ideas. What we're talking about is like actually like little kid picture books with like, you know, 20 words on the page and eight pages in the whole book. But they're still in this point in 2002, when this book line launched, they're still of the mindset that it's important to incorporate Spider-Girl into the, the experience because, you know, I bring up Batman because Batman is kind of like the cool guy and like, you know, then there's Wolverine or there's Superman and Captain America and they're like a little bit more like the Boy Scout, but they're also cool guys. I don't think women and young girls were given quite as many options back in the day and I think they really did believe in 2002 that they were just four years after her launch in MC2 that there was some viability to creating that sort of Miles Morales-esque generational indoctrination to a character. And I think they thought Mayday was the way to go. But by virtue of her character background, what can you do? Like, how do you start the book with, my name is Mayday. You probably know me better as a miscarriage. But, <laughs> oh no, she's um, a stolen and killed baby, right? She's a killed baby? In 616, she is a dead baby. Well, she, yeah, so she's a killed baby in modern continuity. And then when we go to Spider, the Renew Your Vows storyline, we discover that she is a miscarriage in that universe. How do you even address that? <laughs> like, not even necessarily for these children, but part of what we think about when we think about crafting these narratives and how these things come together is like how the reading age will come to interact with that topic as they get older. And I think it's a lot harder to say, oh, I'm really from the future in an alternate timeline. Also, I'm dead everywhere else. Like this idea that Spider-Girl is cool to be and you should want to be her and you should get to be her and she's special. The way that interacts with the inability to explore Mayday as she exists really reflects on what you're talking about with the messiness of children's television and the simplification of it later on. And I love that you brought up Batman the Animated Series because Batman the Animated Series had a really cool feature slash, you know, thing that held it back, which is that Batman had two kid sidekicks. He had Robin and he had Batgirl. So for kids, you're not really identifying with Batman. You're probably identifying with Robin or Batgirl. And then Batman is like maybe what you'll be when you're an adult, which is something you can't even fathom and is so far away from what you are that he kind of becomes a little bit genderless. You know, of course, he's very male and I, you know, that that can't be excused. There's no Batwoman. But I do feel like he is so far away from what you are when you're a kid that I knew a lot of girls who really liked Batman too, but they wanted to be Batgirl. Like I wanted to be Robin. And Spider-Man is just a slightly different character. He is not so adult that you're like, that's a rich man with a mansion. I have no idea what the fuck that is. He is often like a cool high schooler, which you can kind of imagine. And but he's a boy and he's very boy and he, you know, he's always having girl troubles. And there's really nothing for young girls to glom onto. And Mayday really represents an opportunity to do that. And the fact that she is an updated, more modern character really gives an opportunity for young girls to connect with something that's like legitimately cool, where sometimes Spider-Man can even come off like not just the dorkiness of like he's a science nerd, but the dorkiness of like uh, we haven't quite figured out how to update this character from his origin in the 60s. And even if we're doing some trappings of that, it's really takes a struggle and takes a lot of new 
voices to really move that forward. It was just really tough to give young people of any age the same thing from Spider-Girl. And I think that this book really did the, the best that they could and not a bad job in, you know, making this Spider-Man's cousin who has her own outfit and looks like him and is just kind of vaguely recognizable as a spider person. But I think, you know, they are preparing young girls for the day that they can grow up and be like, oh, Mayday, I'm going to follow that story. I just I think it's unfortunate that Marvel didn't find the same ways to do that that DC did with Batman, Batgirl and Robin. The complexity is then I think the failing is that every spider girl is essentially a response to Spider-Man and not in the same way that that Batgirl and Robin interplay. Batgirl and Robin are parallel versions of the same rung. And yes, Batgirl is, you know, it's because Robin isn't Batboy, but Batgirl, by having the name Bat in her name, maybe lends her a, a little bit more credibility. I do recognize that for all the ways that all of the Batwomen are fucking fantastic, and Batgirl, by extension, of course, we're still talking about the lesser recognized of the pair, but I would say there is a bit more equality to the cultural interpretation of Robin and let's say your most prestigious Batgirl to I would say any Spider Woman up against Spider Man because Spider Man doesn't really have a whole lot of sidekicks. The closest you have is Miles, who is not a Robin. He perhaps is the Robin of Spider Man's Batman in that he is the younger influenced character, but you know, he is still at the end of the day his own spider person. You know, he's not a sidekick and he doesn't have a female spider counterpart because spider Gwen is much more an adult. But then again, spider Gwen, she is. Oh my God. Spider Gwen is Mayday is like May is like, oh, I'm just that other spider person now. Yeah. Like I am. I'm your cousin. (laughs) I'm your cousin from an alternate universe. I think it's also really funny that like Batgirl kind of gets a similar treatment to Storm in so far as like Storm is always treated like you can't fucking touch this woman. She is just so badass, but she is still written by a male dominated industry and she will very broadly conceptually get left behind in favor of letting Cyclops be the lead of a team. You know, there's just too many male dominated voices to really give Storm the respect she deserves. And similarly, like Batgirl is always shown to like have her shit together to be kind of more resourceful than Robin to be a little bit more badass a little bit more willing to like take the risk to do the thing so for girls you really get the chance to be like I'm really the badass sidekick but you are always dealing with the fact that it is a male dominated industry male dominated writers and there's going to be a degree to which even though the understanding is that you're dealing with kind of a cooler character the writing and the creative development is never going to be able to match that understanding and with Mayday and with Spider Girls in general you kind of don't even get that I think we were getting there in DeFalco's Spider Girl but because we didn't have anybody but DeFalco and we didn't have anybody to help develop this character we never got to really follow through on it I think Spider Gwen is getting us closer but now we're just getting into some really like messy multiversal territory but you know I received the most uh, lovely Christmas present from our producer Kevo who I love very much which was a Spider Girl Funko Pop and I immediately put her right with my favorite Funko ever which is Cable because to me they represent this this very similar 
similar thing of like the next generation can just be better and more badass and survive their flop era if somebody just shows up and does the work. And Cable's very lucky that he got that. And I think a big part of it is that he is a male character and there were guns involved. But Mayday, I just feel like, you know, even what we saw with this most recent Steph Williams Infinity comic story is that like she's right there and still ready. The only thing she needs is just like a little bit of finesse to make it okay for her to be in present continuity, despite the fact that she is Peter's daughter. I think that's such an easy thing to do, but she really is that cool confidence of a superhero who just kind of like is better by virtue of, I mean, you know, she's better because she's had privileges to be better, but she is, she's better and she can do better. And I just want there to be writers who can speak to that. I'm left wondering then if the failing of Spider-Girl is not Spider-Girl herself, but rather the fact that she is so dependent on Spider-Man. The thing that is odd is that Spider-Gwen does have Spider in her name, but because her first name, Gwen, and it's this thing so associated with young Spider-Man, you might get that May is a reference to Aunt May, but then you're associating her with this, you know, goddamn old lady. So it's not the same thing as Spider-Gwen. It's as if because Spider-Gwen caught on, they saw the potentiality for this very flashy costume. That's the other thing Spider-Gwen has that Mayday has never had and that Aranya's had that Mayday has never had. Mayday's never had a cool costume that isn't some take on, you know, one of her dads. I was looking through Earth-X for some research stuff. Earth-X, Universe-X, Paradise-X, Marvel's-X. Big fans of that letter they are. And I really could not believe that like every version of Mayday I can find is some version of her dad. Whereas Spider-Gwen, she's fucking cool and she's in fucking awesome colors that are always shown so saturatedly, so magically, and that's not something I get from Mayday. So I think what I wind up finding is that I like the heart of Mayday. I've always wanted the idea of a lineage hero. I like the exploration that we get from that, but the trappings of starting this in any era that is unique to a memory time is tough. By the time Spider-Gwen came into being, Gwen Stacy was dead a whole lot longer than she was alive. It was a part of history that gets referenced a lot. Dead Baby doesn't come up quite as much as Gwen Stacy. So it's a lot easier to talk about. Yeah, I don't think Mayday made any mistake other than being born to the era she was born. I think that's exactly it. Uh, Because, you know, when you talk about the costume thing, you were right, but I know that the idea was what if the iconic costume, but the girl gets to wear it. It wasn't, you know, the only thing she can be is in her father's costume it was you know these colors mean something and she is taking up the mantle which is a beautiful thought but it is also one that by the time we start to get into the mid 2000s and her her star starts to fizzle a little bit somebody ought to have said okay it's time for her own look and it needs to be unique and even what we got in april's costume was like getting us closer to that i just think it wasn't just that she was born at a time where we weren't quite there with how we were writing young women as characters it was also that we still were kind of clinging to this idea that bringing the classic into modern time would somehow you know raise up the level of iconography rather than saying you know it's 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 people like morrison who really said you can reference the classic but aesthetically you have to update 
and you have to do some really serious updates that are sometimes disturbing, but we got to have these growing pains moments. And May never really got to have a, a solid growing pain moment where something that was just so iconic to the classicness of her as a spider person got kind of mushed in order to make her 18 in like 2015. And I'm so glad you brought up April's costume because until you said April, I completely never realized the connections between April's look and Annie. Oh, wow. Yeah, that blue. That And it's this idea of she's that other spider girl that isn't May. Yeah. And it's a really interesting thing to think on in terms of how we kind of saw that Aranya never came for Mayday's job. I don't think Aranya was per se meant to replace the traditional spider girl. I think she was meant to serve a different demographic altogether. I think in that regard, and I, I don't mean this like, you know, let's pit minorities against each other as a queer man and a Latino man. I feel like I'm often told, well, which special do you want to be in? You know, so I say this with some outside of, you know, of observation, but I feel like it's a little bit more like we saw Mayday get replaced by Gwen and there was some question of maybe Gwen and Annie and it was sort of like barely Gwen calm down but then we on the other side of things kind of got Aranya this sort of like what if there was a specialized spider type person who fit the needs of a community who had been underserved despite being a huge part of Spider-Man's fan base and then we saw it again with Silk and I think Miles is also an example of that a character who represents a community who has long been supportive of Spider-Man, has long made Spider-Man a part of identifiable culture within the community and has been long underserved in terms of representation. And, you know, we've seen him catch on in a way that really overshadowed Aranya right the fuck away. And I think it makes me go back somewhere that, uh, well, lesson here, ladies and gentlemen, is that the Slingers were all of the things that make a top tier book exciting. We fucked with form. We reinterpreted structure. We played with the idea of main character, narrative, uh, the idea of who's behind it. It was a very stylized book, very vertigo, very sleek. And even then, very like later vertigo, very Dean Armstrong on some really fucking scary pencils. And yeah, I was really into it at first as we kept reading it. It really let me down. Whereas I think as we continued reading Renew Your Vows, I was disappointed the book wasn't executed with more, I want to say, energy, but focus and focus. Great, but certainly not the same sort of oh that I got from, you know, like I said, slingers by the end. And I love that you brought in Aranya and Silk because and Miles, because then we start getting into a place, this like post 2000 idea that like you don't just have to have a woman being a spider character so that you have something for the girls and so then you're gonna do it that it's a white girl because you know if it is a latina girl it's going to cut somebody off or if it is an asian girl it's going to cut somebody off like those are just relatable to one market it really comes off more as like if there's gonna be other spider people they would just be other people that you see in the world may unfortunately born of her time really does feel like we have spider man i guess we need a spider girl so that the girls could 
get into the mix, but she has to be for every girl. And nobody wants to elevate her out of that into, you know, okay, so if her identity is that she is a young white girl and the daughter of a superhero who was born into her powers, like, what does that mean? And what does it mean to be a teenager raised by a superhero, in her case, retired? But there are so many things that they set up for Mayday that could now really put her in the same lanes as characters like Aranya and Silk. And she would just be another spider person who has her own unique identity traits that a lot of different people will relate to, even people that are not her gender, even people that do not have her skin color or background. They will just see her and think like, high school sucks. I get it, May. But because she really is coming out of like, what if Spider-Man, but for girls, again, like just nobody takes the time to be like, okay, time for an update, time to figure this out. And it leads me to a realization that's kind of biting. But if my perspective is just give us the fucking representation, if to the argument is it doesn't matter, like, why does it matter? Okay, well, then you can't be that upset about it. So why does it matter? Let us have the representation, which then begs the question, what's the big fucking deal if he's always in a mask? Spider-Man's fucking face is always covered. Almost every spider character's face is almost always covered because the basic Spider-Man mask design, the Scarlet Spider mask design, the Spider-Girl mask design, you know, most of a spider character's face is covered. And there's many, many, many that are uncovered. But whereas like Cyclops is just a visor, you know, Wolverine often has no mask on. Spider characters tend to be fully covered. So the idea that Spider-Girl needed to be very cookie cutter. And there's actually a problematic element built into the identity of Spider-Girl as a concept, as a result of who she is. This idea that she had to be the child of Peter Parker and Mary Jane, because that's what she's a reference to, which I get. I really understand that that was the starting point for the idea. And we weren't in a brave time that would be willing to challenge the popular ideas of the era. But the fact that she is just girl Spider-Man, that is the child of Spider-Man, that she is the most predictable take on the spider identity is so exposed through things like Spider-Verse that it's hard to, it is hard to fail to see. No, it is hard to, yeah, it is hard to fail to see how she is rendered irrelevant by virtue of her backstory. Yeah, but she doesn't have to be. That is, I can, you're right that that's, I feel that's why she fizzled. That's why she is where she is now. But because of the unique circumstances of her, not really so much her creation, but of her time just really pretty much under only Tom DeFalco's pen. And in this one story from this universe that has basically fallen away, uh, you know, from her brief interlude with the Spider-Verse and Web Warriors, she, you could really drop her in 616 tomorrow, again, gesturing towards Cable with a similar thing where she just shows up and she goes, I know this is weird, but I am your daughter from a, from a world in which you are about 40. And I know that I'm not your daughter, but my father was so much like you. And, you know, I even traveled back in time and met you once and you guys are very similar. But like, I am now here to stay and I, I, I was taught by you and I'm an incredible superhero. Like, she's ready. I mean, you know, I think of people, Steph Williams was a great creator to put on that book. And I think I'd love to see her again. I think of Alyssa Wong for every single project and I would think about them for this one too. Teeny Howard, Leah Williams. There are so many 
incredible people writing for Marvel that could take this character in main continuity from everything that she has been through, which, yeah, is a little bit, it's a weird circumstance and it got a little monotone there for a while, but she is ready to be this character that can be so relevant and important to so many people. And it reminds me of a conversation we had in the car. We, you know, have a lot of conversations that sort of fear into our work discussion, right? So it, it's hard to turn it off. But one of the things I said was with the Steph Williams arc, it felt very much like it was almost like, oh, do you know the basics of Spider-Girl? Well, don't go back and read it. Maybe we'll do a six-issue miniseries of the stuff that you would need to make this four issues of Spider-Girl make sense. But here's a general idea of what you should know. And because we know, as we said in the episode, that that version of May's, or you know, our version of May, our Mayday, who was in Web Warrior, that her dad is currently erstwhile detained as the other in another storyline. And she herself seems to be kind of busy. And this story had no mention of her dad being dead or busy. There was no mention of alternate universe dead Uncle Ben. There's no mention of being a part of the multiverse. There's no mention of any of that stuff. But Benji is so much older than he is during those things. I'm left wondering if this is actually an opportunity for a clean, fresh restart on Mayday Parker. It is an opportunity. Will it be taken? Of course we cannot know, but I I hope somebody is hearing the passion with which we talk about this character because I don't think, I mean, we are uh, clearly the only ones who decided to spend hours and hours and hours reading and talking about it, but people are listening to us and I think there are plenty of other people out there who are thinking about this. The opportunity is there. I just, somebody has to take the chance and I, you know, I feel bad because because I feel like so much of this is like I have to like shit on Ghost Spider in order to get there, which I don't want to. And I feel that there is room for everybody. I also know how the economics and the commercial viability aspect of these things work. And there often is a feeling of there can't be too many of a similar demographic type of character or there's dilution and they both stop being popular. But I really do feel like Ghost Spider, Gwen Stacy, despite what a great character she is, really kind kind of got a lot of things that May deserved. And I just really don't think that May can't also have those things. And I want to interact with what you're saying, because I know we've talked about it a bit, you know, privately, and I actually connect with some of what you're saying in a complicated way, because it's not that they were May's things. It's that comics believe only one woman can maintain a legacy lineage title before she can't anymore. It isn't that, you know, we have room for two Sorcerer Supremes, even though realistically we know Clea is a Sorcerer Supreme of her own dimension. No, no. We know that Doctor Strange, at the time of this recording, will be coming back with his own number one as the Sorcerer Supreme in just a couple of months' time. It makes me wish that Clea's run as Sorcerer Supreme had been part of a longer ongoing series, that there had been like a first arc of the book that was followed by the death of Doctor Strange stuff that was then followed by Clea's time. Then could roll, like Instead of making it feel like a, a stunt, right? So because we live in this era of stunt women, where it's, oh, Thor's a woman right now stunt now she's this other thing it's not quite the same but it's pretty cool and then we get the same thing with clea she's a sorceress supreme but of a different dimension it's not quite the same thing but it's cool 
And I feel like so many shitty, rude nerd bros are so insistent on the it's not the same part that it ruins the quality of the it's also cool Spider Girl and Aranya and Spiderling. And, you know, I'm trying to think of other, but all of them, they could all just share a fucking book. Throw Maddie Franklin in there. Let's read some Alias Coming Home. Let's do it. Like, I'll do it right now. But there's room for all of these women if only we weren't constantly being told we can take chances on men like Ghost Rider and Deadpool and give them 55 relaunches in six years but if a woman's book bombs kick her the fuck out of the universe I, and I love that you brought it to Ghost Rider because that's such a good example of like being perfectly fine with the nebulousness of who is the iconic Ghost Rider you know Miles I just am so Miles clawed his way to an equality of understanding as Spider-Man and I think you know for people our age and older that's still really tough i think it's pretty split and that a lot of people can never acknowledge that miles is spider-man in the same way that peter is but i think for the younger generations he's been around long enough that like there are two spider-men one is miles and one is peter and they're basically equal nobody cares who the definitive ghost rider is it was pretty easy to go from making it johnny blaze to danny catch to now it is absolutely robbie reyes and aaron did work like it did matter and like people did care and i'm glad he did because i think it needs needs to be Robbie for a really long time but then I am so in love with Kushala and she's such an important identity that I really while I don't need her to be the iconic Ghost Rider I need her to be a really important character don't even get me started on the Sorcerer Supreme aspect of that situation but it really does feel like we can't ever have like a girl be Spider-Man like it's just not gonna happen and so now we have to duke it out for second best place and it is duking it out and one of them does have to win and one of them gets to be at the top of the tier and the other ones will figure it out but that's not the same thing and it really does not need to be that way not only can they all work together not only can you know i the i love nothing more than the scene that people hate and demean and bemoan in avengers endgame where all the women work together because i think there are so many scenes in movies where bros work together with stilted dialogue and silly situations that they would never find themselves themselves in and it just looks cool so nobody bats an eyelash but when it's done for women one time because it never happens that people have this meltdown and have to analyze every single issue of why it shouldn't work is emblematic of this same thing where like we now have to analyze every single spider woman and point out why there can only be one and she'll always be second to peter but she can have the place that she has but the other ones cannot that's just too much and i know that a lot of creators and a lot of fans do not feel this way but that those who do become such a loud voice in the community that it is something that we are constantly wrestling with and one of the reasons i love having the conversations that you and i have is to really be a loud and articulate voice in the camp of like put them all on screen on a book all the time they are awesome we do not need to do this there must be one iconic one and the rest can't ever matter as much and you know i am glad that you brought up that there can't ever be a female spider-man in that regard and i feel like it's because i often hear things like you know the breasts what are you gonna do about the breasts and you know obviously my first response is oh jesus christ but my second response is i think electra just proved that you sound pretty stupid and you know she's not the first nor is she going to be the last 
last, and she might not even be the best example in comics right now, of a character who was traditionally male that is now being presented as female, and the whole world is pretty on board. I think where the ideas get tricky is that people are really sacred about certain parts of the character, and Marvel is always banking on the parts they're tweaking aren't going to be the parts that make people real bitchy about it. And the real problem is the people who get bitchy, the people who are like, "Mm -mm, nope, that's, uh, I don't accept that. Well, I understand the idea that things should be, it kind of kept in stasis, but outside of comics, I don't know anything that's been in regular publication held by a single entity for decades this way, outside of like soap operas. But even then, like, I think a big thing is no one's really watching it from the beginning with, you know, not enough people are that they're worried. Yeah, you can't ever go back with soap operas like, you know, there's it's a uh, it's oral history. You know, your grandma remember is when the these two characters were married, but you can't get those episodes and re- I mean, you technically you could, but nobody does. So after they have just paved over it for a couple of years, nobody cares. But with comics, you can go grab those old issues and be like, but that's the real one. Because you can read things very differently than you can watch things. And it's something that, uh, you know, I talk about a lot with this show. It's part of why we focused on comics for so long and didn't want to look at other forms of media because, you know, comics were something that everybody on the team could pick up and read. And, you know, we're looking at a very different X's for podcast going forward. And it's going to be a really cool time to experiment with some new things. And uh, I think if we go any further on this topic, TK, we will not have anything to talk about in our wrap up episode. (laughs) That's true. But I'm really glad that we went where we did with this today, because really the thesis of everything has been for quite a long time that Spider-Girl, Mayday Parker, May Parker is really important. It is important that this character existed in the first place. It is important that she still exists, and it is important that she could continue to exist and have a really expansive line of story possibilities. And little stupid things like a Saturday morning kids cartoon or a, you know, cardboard book for a three-year-old really do continue to support that thesis because we see versions of May. And yes, they are tweaked to be appropriate for the audiences that are going to catch them. But just in the same way that the Spider-Verse cartoon was tweaked for a Saturday morning cartoon audience, that audience is going to grow up and remember Spider-Verse and they will embrace the more complicated one. That same audience is going to grow up and meet Mayday Parker having met Petra and be able to embrace her. When they are teenagers, they're going to say, I remember a version of her from when I was five and I really like this one that I can relate to now. And I cannot wait to come back and take one last deep look at everything Mayday, Spider-Girl, MC2, and the totemic properties of spider symbology before we put this one in a sort of spider stasis to be re-examined as there's new material. You know, we've we've really gone through like 500 issues. So 500 issues in like eight months, you know, putting this amazing project into, you know, like I see, keep saying stasis, just putting it on pause while we wait for new material isn't the death of this, but rather the idea that what we've created is so powerful that even though there isn't more material right now, as soon as there is more material, we'll be ready for it. We were reading the archives and now this is going to become a serial experience where wherever there's a new installment, we'll be there. And until we come back to take a look at that, yeah, you know, real time, we actually have to get ready for a show later on tonight. <laughs> Super excited. But TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on that show later. 
later tonight. Uh, at least once a week, I'll be talking about uh, the most recent comics that have come out. That's usually sometime around Sunday. Sometimes it's Monday. We're locking down that schedule. And then, you know, here and there throughout the rest of the week, we find new things to record. But you will find me on the X is for podcast live YouTube channel, the Hubs Plus YouTube channel from time to time. And of course, you can find me on social media at uh, X Nate X Gray X. You can find me all of those amazing places as well, including the Hubs Plus Network over on YouTube at Hubs Plus Network. You can find me all over this amazing channel at xsforpodcast.com, as well as on my socials at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until we come back to take one more look at what it means to be living in a Spider-Girl world, we'll see ya. Bye. Bye.